Yemen's Houthis hit a Norwegian vessel in the Red Sea days after Iran's other proxies carry out their most intensive strikes since October on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. We get reaction from a U.S. analyst with the Hudson Institute. This is what war with Iran looks like. They use their proxies, they test red lines, and we, I don't even know if we communicated a red line to the Iranians at this point. Plus, we speak to an Iranian law professor who witnessed the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony for Iran's jailed rights icon, Nargis Mohammadi. And two weeks after Iran re-arrested dissident rapper Tumaj Salehi, his German political sponsor tells us what she is doing to help. I stay connected with everybody who knows a little bit of the situation, and then we are trying to, to piece all those pieces together. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Iran. Good morning. I'm Michael Lippin in Washington. Yemen's Iran-backed Houthi group has claimed responsibility for a missile strike late Monday on a Norwegian-owned commercial tanker in the Red Sea. The U.S. military confirmed that a missile fired from Houthi-controlled territory in Yemen struck the vessel named Strinda and caused a fire. Three days earlier, U.S. military officials said Iran's other proxies carried out at least six attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria, including a mortar strike on the U.S. embassy in Baghdad early Friday. It was the most strikes on U.S. bases in the region in a single day since those proxies began the almost daily rocket and drone attacks in mid-October. No injuries were reported. VOA's Pentagon correspondent Carla Babb asked Defense Spokesman Major General Patrick Ryder in a Tuesday briefing if the Iranian proxy attacks have hampered the mission of U.S. forces in the region. Despite uh, these attacks, which as we've talked about before, are not, it's not the first time uh, these Iranian proxies have done these types of activities, we continue to stay focused on that mission. Uh, certainly, if our forces are put into danger, uh, we will take appropriate action to protect them, but it's not going to deter us from doing what we're there in the, to do in the first place, which is uh, ensure the, that the lasting defeat of ISIS. Michael Pregent is a former U.S. intelligence officer for Middle East security policy and now serves as a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. I spoke to him by phone Tuesday and asked what most concerns him, attacks by Yemen's Houthis, or strikes on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. I think what's more concerning is that the United States isn't doing anything about it. We continue to excuse these attacks and, and try to make the argument that uh, because the Biden administration does not want this to escalate, they're not going to take any actions, when in fact we're seeing escalation. This is what war with Iran looks like. They use their proxies. They test red lines. And we, I don't even know if we communicated a red line to the Iranians at this point. I believe it's do not kill an American, but that's going to mean they're going to kill an American, and we're going to have to see the response after that. So what's concerning to me is Iran's continuing to use its proxies in Iraq and Syria to attack American bases, and then Ansar Allah, which is the Houthis in Yemen, to attack commercial shipping and also, you know, at least fire in the direction of U.S. Navy vessels. The strongest proxy that Iran has is Hezbollah. Hezbollah is watching to see what the U.S. is going to do. 
if the U.S. continues to not take out the archer, so when I say archer, it's the archer arrow argument. The arrows are the drones, the rockets, and the missiles. Shooting those down, that's not deterrence. That's basically just strictly defense. You have to hit them when they're preparing to do it. And we've done it on a couple occasions in Iraq. But um, the more Hezbollah sees that the U.S. isn't willing to take on Iraqi militias or answer Allah, the more comfort it gives Lebanese Hezbollah to get more involved in the Israeli-Hamas conflict. And that's what's most concerning to me. So I want to pick up on that point. Is there any evidence that you can point to that Hezbollah may be getting comfort from just this scenario? Well, there's, there's more skirmishes, more cross-border skirmishes. And of course, Israel just put out an ultimatum that they need to move Hezbollah forces to a pre-established uh, line that the UN put in place in Lebanon. Nasrallah has guided sophisticated missiles and rockets. Hamas doesn't. The Hezbollah rocket contingent and missile contingent could decimate IDF command and control centers and also uh, strategic nodes across the country and also threaten population centers. The more they see the U.S. waver, and, and we have to look at U.S. domestic politics. We just have this report that Biden told donors in private that Israel's losing support. So that strengthens all of Iran's proxies. That strengthens Iran, Hezbollah, the Iraqi militias to continue doing it because they're seeing U.S. resolve begin to wane. So as far as evidence of what Hezbollah can do, it just looks like a permissive environment. The more they hear that the U.S. is starting to back away from its full support to Netanyahu's government, especially in the IDF ground offensive in Gaza, the more likely they are to take action. And now Israel's talking about expanding operations in the north, specifically looking at Hezbollah. Well, just to give you another point of view, so the Biden administration has been continuing to provide military supplies to Israel. In fact, the administration just sent some supplies to get around a stalemate in Congress in terms of authorizing more military support. And you do have the uh, several rounds of U.S. retaliatory strikes on Iranian proxy groups in Iraq and Syria. So what kind of message do you think those actions send to those uh, Iranian proxy groups? Well, when you hear phrases like, you know, we're going we're gonna to send Israel weapons, and then they turn out to be just basically refitting the, the Iron Dome, keeping it stocked. And then when you, you look at the U.S. strikes in Iraq, I think we've killed probably 10 IRGC Quds Force militia members. So they're Iraqis, basically. But prior to that, we have 90 attacks to date. We're hitting empty buildings. We have the capability to show a video uh, battle damage assessment, right? After a strike, we have the ability to show explosions. We started to do that, meaning the Biden administration started to show those secondary explosions so they could actually say it was an arms depot or a weapons storage facility in Iraq and Syria. But it's not enough. There were attacks or mortar attacks on the embassy compound. The militias are doing whatever they want with impunity, not only against Iraqi civilians, but also against American bases. And I'm also concerned about the back channels where, you know, Brett McGurk out of the NSC and others that have a very cozy relationship with Baghdad are not asking Baghdad to do anything about it because we know they can't. Well, what is your view of the argument that the U.S. wants to do everything it can to prevent the conflict from escalating? That's been a consistent line from the Biden administration. 
And they likely have a very real concern that taking more aggressive action against Iran's proxies in Iraq, against Yemen's Houthis, would do just that, would escalate. So I take this position. We're watching Iran escalate now, again, without feeling any pain at all. In fact, actually being rewarded with you know, lifting, lifting the embargo on the $10 billion out of Iraq, sending the $6 billion to Qatar that hasn't been frozen yet, that hasn't been taken back yet. And the Houthis just launched a cruise missile. The Houthis hit an oil tanker today. That's escalation. And if we want to see that stop, if we want to see the hostages released, we could put pressure on Tehran. We could conduct strikes on IRGC positions inside of Syria and inside of Iran, even Yemen, and basically send a deterrence message that they would listen to. Uh, when Reagan took out half of their Navy in 1988, Operation Praying Mantis, Iran backed down. When Trump killed Qasem Soleimani, who I would argue would be equal to half of Iran's Navy, if not all of it, Iran backed down. They had a face-saving gesture with targeting the non-U.S. side of a base, and unfortunately, a lot of our guys got concussed, and they had, you know, they now have traumatic brain injuries. We now have Americans with traumatic brain injuries because of these 90 attacks in Iraq and Syria. This is the playbook. This is what Iran does. This is what war with Iran looks like. A series of provocations by its proxies that are directed by Tehran, and the end goal are more concessions, more payoffs, and that's what we're seeing. Well, Michael Pregents, a former U.S. intelligence officer and a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, speaking to us from here in Washington, D.C., thank you for sharing your perspective and being with us on Flashpoint Iran. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Jailed Iranian human rights activist Nargis Mohammadi was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in absentia in a Sunday ceremony at Oslo City Hall in the Norwegian capital. The Nobel Committee had announced the award for the 51-year-old Mohammadi in October. Committee Chair Berit Rice Anderson opened the award ceremony with this tribute. The Nobel Peace Prize for 2023 goes to Nargis Mohammadi for her courageous fight for freedom and human rights over three decades, and for taking leadership when a wave of protests swept over Iran. This year's Peace Prize recognizes the brave women in Iran and around the world to fight for basic human rights and for an end to the discrimination and against segregation of women. Mohammadi's 17-year-old twin children, Kiana and Ali Rahmani, accepted the award on their mother's behalf to sustained applause from the audience. They also called out the slogan that their mother has championed and that has defined the women's rights protest movement that emerged in Iran last year. Women, life, freedom. Payam Akhavan is an Iranian professor of international law at the University of Toronto and a former prosecutor at international courts and tribunals. He was one of Mohammadi's guests of honor at Sunday's ceremony, and I asked him by phone for his reflections on the event. The ceremony was dignified, it was historic, but what really struck me above all was that heartbreaking scene of the twin children 
of Nargis, who are now 17 years old, who haven't seen their mother in years, receiving the prize on her behalf and making the speech on her behalf, a speech that was smuggled out of prison. And it really says something when this human rights champion, this lioness of Iran, who is the cause of pride and celebration for the international community, is in prison. Whereas those who are imprisoning her themselves have their hands full of blood for the crimes that they have committed against the Iranian people, including the uh, thousands of peaceful protesters who were killed on the streets, who have been imprisoned, uh, tortured, raped. So in effect, the human rights champion is in prison and those who are the real criminals are in positions of leadership. But I think it was also very important at this ceremony to be reminded that the woman life freedom movement, even though it has momentarily suffered a setback, is still alive and well, that the Iranian people still aspire to have a country where they can enjoy freedom, where they can enjoy dignity and justice. And amidst the changing headlines in the world, uh, perhaps it was a really good moment for our community to once again unite under the banner of human rights and strengthen once again our resolve to continue our struggle. Well, you mentioned the powerful scenes of Nargis Mohammadi's children uh, walking up to the stage and accepting the award, uh, reading uh, the speech that she had sent from prison. What are you seeing in terms of the international reaction to the award? And how do you think that can actually help the Women Life Freedom Movement? Well, it gives people in Iran hope that they have not been forgotten, that they should continue their struggle, that the world is taking notice of them. And in, in that sense, Nagis Mohammadi has correctly said that this prize is not just for her, but it is for all the freedom-loving people of Iran. And it is also a reminder to the Islamic Republic of Iran that the world stands not with the regime, but the people of Iran and their aspirations for a future in which they will enjoy democracy and human rights. Can I also ask, what impact do you think this award and the ceremony will have on Nargis Mohammadi herself? She remains in prison, obviously. She was able to get out some messages and the speech to be read by her children. How do you think uh, Iranian authorities, when they see what happened in Oslo, are going to react when it comes to how they treat her? It remains to be seen how responsive the Islamic Republic will be to the international condemnation of human rights abuses. And in fact, giving the prize to Nargis as a rebuke, rebuke to the abuses of the Islamic Republic of Iran. But unfortunately, at this moment in time, Iran has been strengthening its position given the conflicts in the Middle East. And it may, in some respects, be less responsive to international pressures than it would have been otherwise. Uh, but we always have to dig in and prepare for the long run. 
so we should see this merely as one chapter in an ongoing struggle and it's only a matter of time before the people will come out once again and demand their rights. I also wanted to ask about how uh, Nargis Mohammadi's Nobel Peace Prize is perceived in the Iranian diaspora generally. Uh, you might be aware that there's some skepticism toward Ms. Mohammadi from some quarters of the diaspora. They see her as somehow associated with the regime or being given some kind of special uh, treatment by the Iranian government, even while she is in prison. Uh, what is your thought on that kind of reaction? Well, it's very easy to sit in the diaspora as opposed to Evin prison in Tehran and to criticize people. And the fact is that, yes, the reality of people who are actually in Iran fighting for human rights is very different than those living in democratic countries in the West where they have the freedom to protest without any consequences. I personally think that there are far too many conspiracy theories and uh, people need to pay more attention to the facts, to the reality of the situation. And in fact, we really don't have time to waste um, coming up with rumors and this sort of unjustified accusations, which in the case of Nagas Mohammadi really have no reality. So I think the diaspora would do better to put aside all of these conspiracy theories and divisions and unite, unite and create a movement based on uh, solidarity because a divided democratic movement will never succeed, will never succeed in transforming Iran. Well, Payam Akhavan, Professor of International Law and the Human Rights Chair at Massey College of the University of Toronto and a former UN prosecutor at The Hague, joining us on the line from Oslo. Great to have you on Flashpoint Iran. Thank you, Michael. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Iran. I'm Michael Lippin. As we mentioned in last week's program, Iran re-arrested dissident rapper Tumaj Salehi on November 30th, just 12 days after releasing him from a year of detention for peacefully speaking out in support of Iran's women life freedom protests. His political sponsor in the German parliament, Yvonne Rie, has been one of his most outspoken international advocates. I spoke to her on the phone Tuesday and asked how she and Selehi's other supporters, including friends and family, have been reacting to his rearrest. Pretty much everybody is very shocked because, you know, everybody was telling themselves and everybody else that we should be cautious not to be too happy or too glad that he got released on bail. But, you know, still, it's it's something that is very hard to do to stay cautious when somebody got released and you really hope that everything is fine. So if you imagine somebody who has been held in solitary confinement for over 200 days and then he got out and talked about the torture that he endured and then before he got treated emotionally or he was able to deal with his release, he got sent back into prison violently. So... Everybody is very, very worried about his state of mind, his state of health. So that's pretty much everybody is in a pretty big uproar about how he is doing. Maybe it's even worse than the first time because we know now how he was treated the first time. What can you share about the sources of your information in Iran? I mean, I know it's a very sensitive matter when 
people in Europe, for example, try to communicate with people inside Iran about the situation of dissidents. So uh, what can you share? Um, I'm very glad that he has a lot of friends and a lot of relatives outside from Iran. So I stay connected with everybody who knows a little bit of the situation. And then we are trying to, to piece all those pieces together. Of course, I mean, he was talking about her himself in his video. His admin who is staying in Germany is a pretty big uh, support for me to, to translate from Farsi and tell me what's going on or what's, what kind of information is missing. So that's pretty much how we are dealing with information right now. You have long been an advocate for Tumaj Salehi and uh, for his release even the first time that he was in prison for this uh, one-year period. So what can you tell us about your latest uh, activities to promote his release again? Um, it's like the same thing all over again, because now everybody who was relieved, who was happy, maybe who thought they can like put a checkmark on his case and, and move on, we have to get their attention back again. So we are talking to people, talking to a lot of important people, people with a lot of outreach to tell them that Tumor Sali is back in prison and to please, please make some noise about him. I talked to um, Masi Alinejad last week about him. So we are trying to get as much publicity as possible for his case. And it's easier and harder at the same time because this kind of feeling to be happy that he was released and then he got back again and back in prison again, it's very devastating for a lot of people. So we are trying to tell people that now everybody can see how unjust the system is and now we have to be even more loud than ever. So that's pretty much what I'm doing. I'm talking to officials, trying to get a, um, health, a checkup on him, a little bit more information about his uh, condition and how he was being held. But it's very, very hard. Like it has been hard for a year now. It, it's all over again, the same situation. So um, we are used to it, but it's still devastating. Well, you mentioned uh, Masi Alinejad a moment ago, and I just wanted to let our audience know that Masi is a, a VOA Persian TV host. And uh, you mentioned that you were talking to or trying to get information from officials. And I saw you sent a tweet or an X post to the Iranian embassy in Berlin asking for information. Uh, so is there anything you can share about the Iranian embassy and the German capital and anything they have shared regarding his case? Um, the Iranian embassy in Berlin and also a lot of other officials in Brussels, but also in Tehran, got a lot of letters from us. So um, we contact them weekly, like multiple times weekly. And my team told me that they got at least 100 letters from us. So and we always caught up with what was going on when he got out of isolation. We wrote them that it's fine that they got him out of um, solitary confinement, but we still want to know how his health condition is. We caught up on his sentence when he got the sentence. And now after his release, we still demanded that we want all the charges dropped. And now we are starting all over again. Um, it's not really to get an answer out of them because I think everybody who is probably listening to this and who knows the Iranian regime much better and much longer than I do, we can't really expect them to, to answer truthfully. So the only thing that we try to do or the message that we try to convey is we are still watching closely. You will not stop pestering them about his case and the cases of all the 
political prisoners in Iran until they get released and until all the accusations are dropped. Because as we can see in tomorrow's case, it doesn't really matter if that they release him on bail because it's still something that they can hold over him and that they can like get him back into prison anytime they want to. So that's our demands. I'm not alone in, in, in demanding that. So I don't really care if I don't get a response. I know exactly that they noticed those letters and they read them and they um, reacted to them. I mean, the Iranian embassy in Germany, they are following me on Twitter. That's pretty weird, but still, it's, it's a response, a reaction to my um, activities for tomorrow. Well, Yvonne Rie, member of the German parliament, uh, joining us from Berlin. Please keep us posted on any responses you do get about Tumaj Lehi's case. And uh, good to have you back on Flashpoint Iran. Thank you so much for having me and giving me the platform. And I will keep you posted. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. I'm Michael Lippin. Glad you could join me and I invite you to do the same next week. 